Welcome to the IDC podcast. The IDC promotes independent research on antitrust and competition law and policy issues, being also the point of contact between all those who have a special interest in the area, both in Latin America and globally. Marco, thanks uh, for joining us. Thanks for joining the IDC. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you on board. Uh, today we're having uh, the opportunity of uh, discussing with Marco Vota, uh, a recent work he, he, I think it's forthcoming, it's not already published, but I mean it will be published soon, on uh, abusive or exploitative abuses and digital markets. Uh, but before you go there, let me introduce Marco. Marco, Uh, professor Marco Botta is a part-time professor at the European University Institute, where he is uh, the coordinator of the Florence Competition Program, an entrance for judges. In addition, he's an affiliated research fellow at the Max Planck Institute for Innovation and Competition in Munich, Germany. And finally, he's an adjunct professor at the Law Faculty of the University of Austria, uh, Vienna in Austria where he teaches uh, EU competition and state aid law. Uh, Marco, thank you for joining us. Uh, uh, thanks for accepting the challenge of speaking with us here at the IDC. Thanks a lot, uh, Pablo, for the kind invitation. Uh, I'm very happy to be here uh, with you today. Professor Botta's paper discusses the revival of, ex of exploitative abuses in Europe. In particular, uh, his work analyzes the legal test and recent enforcement trends uh, concerning excessive discriminatory prices, as well as unfair trading conditions under Article 102 of the treaty. Uh, but as we said at the beginning, um, he's more concentrating in this paper on digital markets and the revival of exploitative abuses Uh, that has mostly concerned unfair trading conditions. Uh, the peculiarities of digital markets, for example, uh, close to zero marginal costs, winner-takes-all dynamics and zero price markets make hard for a competition agency to assess an excessive pricing case uh, under, for example, the United Brands uh, test and the benchmarking approach. So, Marco, without spoiling your work, uh, again, Welcome and uh, thanks for sharing us, uh, joining us. And uh, the room is yours. Thank you, Pablo. So, um, as you mentioned before, uh, I would like to start my presentation by providing an overview of what are exploitative abuses in the light of the case of the European Court of Justice. So, I will talk about the, the legal test of excessive discriminatory pricing and fair trading conditions, and then later I will focus, I will discuss the recent enforcement cases in Europe and um, as Pablo anticipated before, most of these cases concern actually unfair trading conditions. So in my conclusion, I will try to discuss why that is the case, why we see in Europe this sort of revival of exploitative abuses limited to unfair trading conditions when it comes to digital markets. So what are exploitative abuses? Um, 
Because I, I'm used to say that exploited abuses are abuses that directly harm customers of the dominant firm. You know, that to draw a distinction with the other type of abuses, which are usually investigated by competition authority, where the harmful consumer is more indirect, I would say, by excluding competitors, also consumers later are harmed. Um, there are three categories of exploitative abuses since um, in Article 102 and the case uh, since the Treaty of Rome in 1957. We have the prohibition of excessive prices and unfair trading conditions uh, in Article 108, 102A and discriminatory prices in Paragraph C. Um, something which is not mentioned in the treaty but is clear from the case law of the Court of Justice is that a dominant firm may exploit its dominant position only if it's an avo- unavoidable trading partner. So, if it's a legal monopoly or a de facto monopoly. Uh, so, this is also recognized by economists. It's um, essential for uh, uh, not only to be dominant, to have simply 40% market share in order to be able to uh, impose excessive uh, prices and discriminatory conditions, but you have to be uh, in a position, in a quasi-monopoly position. Um, so it's well known that uh, exploited abuses have rarely been investigated in Europe, both by the Commission and by the National Competition Authorities, for a number of reasons. First uh, of all, because of the slightly unclear test, legal test. Secondly, because of the risk of overlap with price regulation, because you can prohibit excessive pricing under Article 102, but you can also, um, let's say, regulate prices in certain industry. Um, or also because of the risk of uh, harming the incentives to innovate for uh, dominant firms. Uh, what is the legal test of excessive pricing? So, as um, Pablo mentioned before, the traditional test is the United Brands test developed by the Court of Justice in 1979, which is uh, a two steps test. So, the price is excessive when the difference between the price and cost is excessive, but also is cumulative when the price is unfair on itself or unfair when compared to competing products. So it's a quite difficult um, uh, test to fulfill for uh, the competition authorities, as you probably remember, even the commission in the United Brands uh, case failed to fulfill this, uh, this test, and uh, the decision was quashed by the Court of Justice. But um, already in the ruling in United Brands and also in the later case law, the Court of Justice has recognized that other alternative tests are possible. And, uh, specifically, the benchmarking approach has been recognized by the Court of Justice as an alternative legal test that the competition authority can use to prove an excessive pricing case. So, in this case, um, competition authority should identify a benchmark price, um, which could be the price charged for a certain type of order by competitors in the same relevant market where the dominant firm operates or the price charged by the dominant firm in different geographic areas. So, let's say we have different benchmark prices and then the competition authority would have to compare the price considered excessive with the price um, considered a good benchmark and to see if the difference is appreciably high, significant and persistent. Um, the, uh, 
UK Court of Appeal in Pfizer Flynn has underlined that because this exercise is quite difficult, the Convention Authority might want to verify its findings under multiple tests. And finally, the dominant firm, and it's always the case, at least in theory, for abuse of dominant cases, can put forward some objective justifications. So under Article 102, Paragraph A, which have a prohibition of uh, excessive pricing by the dominant firm, but also prohibition of unfair trading conditions. What are unfair trading conditions are um, clearly not price conditions, uh, which are unilaterally imposed by the dominant firm on its customers. Uh, we don't have uh, a clear definition in the case of the Court of Justice of what is unfair. Um, usually, if you look at the case of the Court of Justice, you have uh, specific type of trading conditions considered unfair on a case by case by the court. For instance, uh, the dominant firm uh, impose uh, on its customers a contract which is permanent, which cannot be terminated by, by the customer, um, or the customer is forced to buy uh, goods or services which have not been requested. These are just examples of clauses considered unfair by the Court of Justice. Something which is not mentioned in the case of the Court of Justice, but it has been recognized um, very recently by uh, the French Competition Authorities in Google Let's Rules case, and I will talk about this case later, is that the, 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 the trading condition should not only be unilaterally imposed and unfair in order to, to, to be prohibited, but they should also cause uh, in anti-competitive effects in the downstream market. So they should somehow distort the competition between the, um, the customer affected by the, the clauses and its competitors in the downstream market. Finally, uh, as usually, the dominant firm can put forward some objective justifications, like, for instance, the possibility to protect its commercial interests. The last typology of uh, exploitative abuse is the uh, discriminatory. Um, so here, the uh, Convention Authority should verify that the dominant firm uh, charged dissimilar conditions to equivalent transactions uh, with different trading partners, and that the discriminate, uh, discriminated customer suffers a competitive disadvantage. In the past, uh, um, a customer that was paying for a product more in comparison to um, other customers of the dominant firm was, uh, um, let's say, presumed to be uh, in a competitive disadvantaged position. Um, after the ruling of the Court of Justice uh, in, in uh, MEO, um, this presumption does not exist anymore. So the Convention Authority does not need to quantify the competitive disadvantage, but the presumption is not automatic and the Convention Authority should take into consideration all the relevant circumstances in the case before concluding that the customer indeed suffered a competitive disadvantage. For instance, looking, uh, um, let's say, at the, uh, the possibility, at the strategy, let's say, followed by the dominant firm, if indeed wanted to discriminate these customers or not. So these are the legal tests, um, which are, to my to my understanding and my view quite clear in the case of the court of justice and now 
Let's try to see how uh, this test uh, has been applied by competition authorities in Europe in recent cases concerning dominant digital platforms. So let's start uh, talking about the peculiarities of digital markets. So digital markets are usually characterized by competition for the markets rather than the traditional competition in the markets. So they are characterized by the called winners take all dynamics, where um, a company which is particularly innovative enter into the market and uh, develop a new standard. So take over the full market becomes a de facto monopoly. Digital markets are also characterized by very high, extreme returns of scale. So the cost to produce an additional uh, digital item, digital service is very close, it's close to zero. And this is considered a sort of entry barrier for um, third parties, uh, new competitors which want to enter into the market. Another entry barrier exists distance of important direct and indirect network effects. So uh, let's take the case, for instance, of uh, uh, social media. Um, we all want to join a specific social media like Facebook rather than LinkedIn and so on, um, because our family members, our friends, our colleagues are already members of the same social media. Um, they are part of the same network. So larger is the number of members of the networks, um, more likely, um, let's say, the networks will enlarge by itself, with the so-called dark network effects. And uh, at the same time, uh, um, let's say, advertisers uh, will more likely to uh, uh, engage, to, uh, let's say, uh, to, advertise, to use, uh, let's say, social media which have uh, a large user basis, is, uh, the so-called indirect network effects. So direct and indirect network effects are also entry barriers which um, basically uh, create a market power for, uh, um, let's say, uh, digital platforms which have already a very large number of users and for a new entrance in the market have to establish a large number of users before competitive. Then the last peculiarity of uh, digital markets is the so-called role of data. So data um, are used in the digital economy to pay the majority of digital services. So um, very often we can use uh, social networks rather than search engines uh, and other uh, digital services by, let's say, transferring, by uh, sharing our personal data uh, with the platforms. Data are not rivalry, um, multi-homing is possible, so we can uh, grant our personal data to different uh, platforms, which are also in um, competition. Um, but because of the network effects that I discussed uh, uh, before, uh, the multi-homing is somehow uh, limited, let's say. Uh, it's also there are technical limits to our ability to move our data from one platform to the other, limits to data portability. So, as a consequence of these characteristics, um, platforms which have already accumulated a very large number of uh, uh, data can provide better services to their customers and therefore they have a competitive advantage. 
uh, in comparison to other platforms which have uh, a lower number of users and therefore they can also collect a lower, a lower amount of personal data. So, what is the consequence of all these peculiarities of digital markets that I have just mentioned? So, dominant online platforms, uh, de facto, can be considered unavoidable trading partners for business customers. So, um, let's say, uh, platforms that are dominant in the market, uh, um, they have de facto a position of quasi-monopoly in the market where they operate. And this is the reason why in Europe, we have uh, uh, recently seen uh, uh, a sort of revival of exploitative abuses, specifically unfair trading condition cases, uh, concerning uh, uh, dominant uh, digital platforms. The first case that I would like to discuss with you today, uh, and it's probably the most uh, well-known case uh, also uh, outside of Europe, is the Facebook case. Uh, the Facebook case, um, uh, it's rather than a case, it's a legal saga started in February 2019 when the Bundeskartel Amt, the German Competition Authority, sanctioned Facebook under uh, Article 19 of the GDB, the uh, German Competition Authority, uh, German Competition Law. So, um, so interesting, the case is not based on Article 102, but on the corresponding provision under the German Competition Act corresponding provision to Article 102. Um, the case, uh, um, the decision was uh, appealed to, um, to the Dusseldorf Regional Court, which uh, uh, decided uh, uh, that the implementation of the decision of the remedies adopted by the authority should be stopped because of serious doubt about the legality of the decision. And then um, the Bundesgericht in 2020, so the Supreme Court in Germany reversed the previous interim ruling of the Dusseldorf uh, Regional Court and considered the decision immediately applicable. So where do we stand at the moment? So at the moment uh, we are waiting for a preliminary ruling by the European Court of Justice in, in Luxembourg. The, the case was referred to Luxembourg by the Dusseldorf uh, Regional Court. The case is pending, so we will see what the court will decide. Um, the, the decision in respect to the coming months. Um, so, um, what is the business model of Facebook? It's quite well known to all of us. So, when uh, we um, register, um, let's say, when we create a Facebook account, um, we accept the terms of conditions on Facebook. Uh, we know that our personal data will be used by, by Facebook to be transfer to advertisers um, and also um, let's say our activity the feed that we give when we use facebook we will be transfer shared with advertisers in order to develop target advertising uh, for us for the users um, what we don't know or at least uh, some some of us don't know is that um, Facebook does not only collect personal data from, um, let's say, directly from the users, but also from uh, other sources of its ecosystem, uh, so like Instagram, WhatsApp, so users uh, which have uh, 
um, a Facebook account, but also WhatsApp and Instagram um, account. Um, let's say um, Meta, let's say, is a company uh, that, let's say, get all the different uh, type of services uh, provided today by by the social network, gathers data from all the different sources about specific users. And even when, uh, we, for instance, uh, read the newspaper articles um, and we click the Facebook like button on, on an article on, on a website, um, this data is also transferred um, to Facebook. So the decision of the Bundeskartelland in 2019 was focused exactly on this type of data collection, on the so-called whole Facebook data collection. So the collection of personal data by Facebook from different sources uh, other than uh, the traditional, uh, um, let's say, login to Facebook, so the traditional direct um, sharing of personal data from a user to Facebook. And uh, uh, one point which is very interesting in the decision, and it's probably the point which has been most criticized, is that the Bundeskartelamt relied on the uh, General Data Protection Regulation, the GDPR, as a benchmark to assess whether Facebook in indeed imposed unlawful contractual terms on its users. Um, in Article 6, um, uh, the GDPR provides a number of legal bases. Um, so data processing, personal data processing is lawful only if one of the legal bases is fulfilled. So for instance, uh, the data subject is given the con uh, is constant to the data processing, or for instance, uh, um, data processing is uh, uh, needed for the performance of the contract. And uh, according to the Bundeskartelamt, uh, Facebook users were not informed that Facebook would merge personal data collected on and off Facebook uh, ecosystem. And also, um, let's say, the, the collection of, of Facebook data, according to the Bundeskartelamt, was not essential for the functioning of the social network, and it was not connected to the performance of the contact. So the contact concluded by the users and uh, uh, Facebook when the users uh, uh, register for uh, the use of the social network. Um, what about the remedies? So the Bundesrepublik did, did not impose any fine on Facebook because of the novelty of the conduct that was sanctioned. Um, the remedy was the imposition of the so-called data silos. So Facebook uh, cannot merge personal data collected on and off Facebook without the user's consent. So Facebook is a very well-known case, um, but it's not the only case of unfair trading conditions sanctioned by competition authority in Europe in the recent years. Another interesting case is the Google Ads rule case uh, decided in 2019 by the French Authority de la Concurrence, the French Competition Authority. So Google Ads, uh, as you know, it's uh, an online advertising platform. So, um, uh, so advertisers can place uh, ads uh, via this, uh, these platforms, uh, which are displayed on Google search results and also on separate websites. Um, Jeep Media is uh, um, a publisher of several websites in, in France, 
um, which is based on its free uh, business model. So the users uh, um, have to register to pay a monthly fee in order to get uh, some information like weather forecast uh, or information about uh, financial macro trends and so on. So the idea of this website uh, managed by media is that the users can receive uh, information which are also freely available online without uh, advertisements. Um, and G-Media for a number of years relied on Google Ads to advertise its websites up to the moment when Google suspended G-Media because of the breach of its uh, Google Ads uh, rules, and in particular the breach of the so-called sale of free items rules. So Google Ads does not advertise websites that provide for a fee a service which is otherwise freely available online. So to some extent, uh, the Google Ads rule, uh, sale of free items, was against uh, the business model followed by G-Media. G-Media submitted a complaint to the French Competition Authority that sanctioned um, Google Ads in 2019, imposed uh, a fine of 150 uh, million euros. Um, why this case is interesting? Because unlike the Facebook case in Germany, um, here, the decision of the French Competition Authority, uh, which has been uh, uh, later confirmed on appeal by um, the, the, French, the Paris Court of Appeal, um, is based on Article 102A of the treaty. Uh, in the decision, the authority uh, followed the same legal test that I mentioned before, so the legal test developed by the European Court of Justice to assess unfair trading conditions. So according to the Autorité de la Concurrence, Google Ads is an unavoidable trading partner for online advertisers and also for uh, service providers by G-Media, so a website that wants to advertise their services. Um, the rules are unilaterally imposed by, by Google, so um, the advertisers, uh, the service providers, cannot have any margin of negotiation of Europe with uh, Google. Um, specifically, the sale of free items uh, um, rule is unfair. Uh, why? Because it was uh, uh, modified unilaterally several times by Google over the time, and it was applied in a discriminatory way, according to the authority of the concurrence. Um, so the authority noticed that the media was penalized, its um, account was suspended, while other um, website which also follow the same business model like Gym Media were not um, suspended by Google. Um, so um, the authority also assessed a possible objective justification uh, put forward by Google. Google argued that actually this rule was needed in order to protect uh, consumers from untrusted websites, but clearly G-Media was not considered an untrusted website, which was harming final consumer. The last point, in my view, is the most interesting one. So if we look at the case of the European Court of Justice, uh, if an unfair, uh, if a contractual clause is um, imposed by an avoidable trading partner, so it's unilaterally imposed, it's considered unfair and there are no objective justification, then we can have an abuse of dominance under Article 102A. 
So the code of justice never assess the potential anti-competitive effects, let's say, of the clause in the downstream markets. And here, in the decision of the authority, for the first time, we have this type of uh, assessment of the anti-competitive effects. Um, so according to the authority, the uh, sale of free items rule um, also had anti-competitive effects for advertisers because it was a uh, it created a sort of uncertainty for advertisers, created disruption in their investment plans, and also um, could distort the competition between different uh, websites. We already mentioned before, the media accounts were suspended, while other websites uh, which use the same um, business model like the media um, did not get uh, a similar sanction from Google. Another case decided by um, the French Competition Authority more recently uh, is the Google News case. Um, so as you know, um, Google reproduced extracts of newspaper articles, so whenever we search uh, for um, the title of a newspaper article, we can find uh, a so short extract from Google search results or on Google News. Um, in France, in 2019, the parliament adopted uh, a new legislation which implemented uh, um, the Article 15 of the uh, European Copyright uh, Directive. And according to this new legislation, search engines and also websites uh, which reproduced uh, extracts, parts of newspaper articles had to um, conclude, obtain a license uh, from the pre uh, press publishers or from the newspaper um, in order to reproduce even a short uh, extract of the article. Uh, so what happened after the entry into force of the law was that Google started to um, uh, press the different uh, publishers or the different newspapers to conclude a free license. And uh, um, Google stopped uh, displacing the extracts of newspaper articles from publishers that refused this uh, free license policy um, requested by Google. So what happened in a couple of months was um, uh, that because uh, the extracts from newspapers uh, were not displaced anymore by Google, um, then also the number of visitors uh, to the website of this newspaper suddenly decreased, and therefore the advertising revenue of these newspapers also decreased. They dropped. Um, so the Autorité de la Concurrence in April 2020 adopted an interim decision, so it's not a final one, um, but still it's a quite long and quite well-developed decision. Um, basically uh, requiring uh, uh, Google to negotiate uh, um, a license agreement with the different uh, press publishers in uh, France. And uh, very recently, in June 2022, the authority accepted the commitments offered by, uh, by Google, which finally accepted to um, start the negotiations with the different uh, press publishers. Um, so, uh, if we look at the interim decision adopted by the, by the Autorité in uh, 2020, we see that the steps of the analysis are 
basically identical, so they are very similar to the steps followed by the authority in the previous decision in the Google Ads Road decision. Uh, so again, Google is considered an avoidable trading partner for, um, let's say, for the French newspapers. The free license policy is considered unfair because it goes against the spirit of the copyright directive and of the uh, French law, which actually aim at providing, granting a fair remuneration to the newspaper. The authority did not accept any justification put forward by Google. And once again, also in this decision, we find uh, an assessment of the potential anti-competitive effects of uh, the combo by Google. So uh, the authority noticed uh, that the number of visitors uh, uh, on the newspaper website that did not accept the free license agreement, uh, um, so basically were uh, banned, they were punished by Google, decreased on average uh, substantially by 31%. And therefore, uh, this also uh, this led to because of the revenues of some newspapers, so also to a potential reduction of um, number of newspapers uh, in France. And potentially, even though it is not expressly mentioned in the decision, this could also lead to a sort of harm to media pluralism in the country. Um, this is a figure taken by the website of the Autorité de la Concurrence, which explains uh, um, what are the commitments uh, proposed by Google to close the case. As I mentioned before, these commitments have been accepted by the Autorité de la Concurrence in June uh, 2022, so very recently. And uh, as you can see, the core aspect of the, of the commitments is uh, um, a sort of uh, monitor negotiation scheme um, between Google and the press publisher. Uh, this negotiation will be monitored by a monitoring trustee. Um, and in case uh, the negotiation fails, uh, the parties will have to um, let's say, submit a complaint to an arbitration tribunal. The last uh, uh, case, um, actually we're talking about two different cases, but they are linked together, uh, that I would like to discuss with you today, is the Apple Apps Store. Um, this is a case um, um, which uh, has been investigated, actually still investigated by the Commission. Um, it's a case, it's a parallel case investigated by the Commission and by the um, Dutch Competition Authority and uh, it's focused on uh, two types of uh, possible exploitative abuses by Apple uh, by, uh, in the context of its uh, App Store. So first, uh, um, the first one is a sort of unfair trading conditions, it's the so-called anti-steering clause. Um, app developers uh, cannot inform uh, their users uh, um, whenever they download uh, uh, an app from uh, uh, the Apple App Store, that there are alternative purchasing possibilities outside of the Apple Store. That they can download, they can buy the same app, uh, for instance, from uh, the app websites uh, and perhaps uh, 
um, if they pay a fee um, in order to download the app, they could uh, um, buy the app for a lower price. So this is prohibited by uh, the rules imposed by Apple in the context of its Apple Store. And also, Apple charge a commission considered excessive, uh, a commission of 30% on all the subscription fees. Um, so clearly most of the apps are downloaded for free, so in this case the 30% commission is not applicable, um, but whenever uh, with a couple of euros, a couple of US dollars in order to download an app, um, then Apple will get 30% of that amount. And <clears throat> again, uh, this, uh, this price is considered excessive um, in comparison to the uh, service offered by um, the Apple Store to the apps developers. So the case has been investigated in parallel by the European Commission and uh, by the Dutch Competition Authority during the past years. In last year, in April, the Commission sent a statement of objection to Apple. Uh, the case is still pending at the moment. And a few months later, the Dutch Competition Authority adopted a decision under Article 102. Um, decision focused only on the anti-steering clauses. So the uh, Dutch Authority only sanctioned um, let's say, the unfair trading condition imposed by Apple Store to the app developers, not um, the excessive pricing in terms of uh, the 30% commission. Um, and also interesting, um, the authority narrowed down the focus of the decision on uh, the anti-steering clauses imposed by the Apple Store on dating apps, so apps which allow dating, let's say, uh, platforms between uh, different uh, persons um, outside of the scope uh, of the decision of the authority uh, are uh, apps uh, um, like, uh, I don't know, videos or uh, video games or so on. Um, why uh, the authority decided to narrow down the focus of its decision? Because um, uh, Apple does not uh, uh, provide by itself any dating app, so Apple is not direct competitor of these dating apps. Um, while according to the authority, the commission decision and investigation would rather focus on, um, let's say, the relationship between uh, Apple Store and apps which are in competition with the services provided by Apple, like uh, services concerning uh, video streaming, music streaming, and so on. Um, also, this case uh, uh, has been closed very recently in June. Um, Apple uh, decided to comply with the decision of the Dutch Competition Authority. And then very recently, a couple of days ago, there have been some rumors that the Commission might offer new investigation concerning the Google Apple Store, um, again, for the same reasons, the anti-steering clause and the 30% commission, which is also required by Google App Stores to the app developers. Um, so the commission will open a new investigation while the Apple uh, Store investigation are still pending.
Um, so I come to my conclusion. So we started by discussing uh, the case of the European Court of Justice in relation uh, to exploited abuses in relation to Article 102 and C. Um, the Court of Justice, with the time, clarified the legal test applicable to, to these provisions. So in my view, personally, um, let's say, uh, the unclarity of the legal test is not a good reason for not enforcing uh, this provision, for not investigating exploitative abuses in Europe. There are other reasons, like overlap with regulation or uh, risk of damaging, harming uh, the uh, innovation incentive by the dominant firm, which might be good reason for the for the convention authority not to investigate this type of cases. But <clears throat> certainly, uh, the unclarity of the test is not anymore a good reason not to investigate exploitative abuses. At least, is my personal view. Um, we talk about digital markets, the peculiarity of digital markets. Markets tend to tip the dominant online platforms, um, often are, can be considered unavoidable trading partners. So, they fulfill the conditions that are de facto, uh, de facto, they have a monopoly position in the markets where they operate, and uh, uh, they often business users uh, which use, uh, let's say, uh, the platform ecosystems uh, um, are forced, let's say, to use the services of the platform. They don't have any other choice. Um, what about the enforcement trends? So, as Pablo mentioned before, uh, there have been a lot of discussion in Europe during the last years about the possible revival of exploitative abuses. Um, so, there have been indeed uh, several decisions uh, by a number of competition authorities. Uh, um, and also by the European Commission sanctioning especially excessive pricing casing in uh, the pharmaceutical sector. Um, when we look at the enforcement trends in digital markets, we can say, uh, looking at the cases that I presented today, that we indeed have an increasing number of investigations in this field, but they all concern unfair trading conditions. And why that is the case, in my view, it's because of the peculiarity of digital markets, of the digital economy. So most of the markets are zero-price markets. Uh, users um, uh, pay with their personal data for a digital service rather than paying via monetary compensation. Um, also in digital markets, it's very difficult to estimate uh, what is the uh, marginal cost of the production of a digital service. Uh, so because of these peculiarities, because of the uh, zero price markets, uh, it's quite difficult to apply the United Brands test. It's quite difficult to apply the benchmarking approach. And it will also be difficult, let's say, to sanction a case of discriminatory pricing in a market where prices do not exist. Um, so I personally don't expect an increase in the number of excessive discriminatory pricing investigation, at least in digital markets, because of the peculiarities um, of these markets. One open question is um, um, about the, um, let's say, industrial customers. So if we look at the case law, the Court of Justice, um, we see that all the cases 
concern about concerning excessive discriminatory pricing and pricing condition usually concern um, industrial customers that are uh, harmed, directly harmed by the exploitative abuse of uh, the dominant company. Um, one open question, which is not clear from the case of the Court of Justice, is whether we can also sanction uh, exploitative abuse, especially unfair trading practices, harming final consumers rather than industrial customers. This is uh, the view followed by the Bundesrat in Facebook, but of course this is a view which is very much debated at the moment in Europe because consumer can also be protected uh, via consumer law or, like in the Facebook case, by data protection law. Um, so this, uh, um, let's say, um, I would say the target of the protection of these provisions remain um, an open question. Talking about unfair trading conditions, uh, um, talking about uh, how to apply the legal test uh, to sanction unfair trading conditions in the digital economy, we can see the following, we can say the following. So clearly, um, dominant online platforms uh, um, control uh, the ecosystem where they operate, they unilaterally impose uh, the rules that um, business users have to follow. So uh, the users are direct to accept the rules or uh, they have basically uh, to leave uh, the platform to the ecosystem. So uh, indeed, the first conditions uh, defined by the case of the Court of Justice, the unilateral imposition of the conditions is fulfilled. What about the unfairness? As I mentioned before, uh, the Court of Justice has never developed a clear formula to define what is an unfair trading condition. Um, but if we look, let's say, at the case law, most of the cases concern, uh, consider unfair, concern uh, contractual clauses, <coughs> which basically um, were contrary to ordinary business practices in the industry. And uh, this is also uh, the approach followed by some competition authority. Um, in the recent cases, so think about the Google Ads rules, where uh, Google unilaterally and often modified uh, the Ads rules, or uh, the Apple App Store, where um, Apple um, de facto limits the possibility for uh, um, the Apple developers to sell uh, their apps on uh, different outlets outside of the App Store. Um, what is interesting, what is new in comparison to the, uh, let's say, traditional case of the Court of Justice is uh, um, the Facebook case and the Google News case, where basically the French and the German Cooperation Authority um, develop new ways to uh, define unfairness. So unfairness is not only uh, a behavior by the dominant firm which is contrary to the ordinary business practice, unfair is a behavior which circumvent the law. Um, like in the Facebook case, uh, for instance, um, uh, Facebook uh, formally complied with the GDPR, but de facto, let's say, the users, uh, according to the uh, Bundeskartelamt, uh, were not uh, fully aware of the merging of the on and off Facebook. Uh, 
personal data. Also novelty in comparison to the case of the court of justice is uh, the assessment of the distortion of competition in the downstream markets uh, caused by the unfair trading condition. This is new, uh, it has been done by the French competition authority in Google News and Google S case. And then finally, um, let's say it's already recognized by the case of the court of justice, at least in theory, is the lack of objective justification. So the, the dominant firm at the platform cannot justify its behavior. To conclude, I would like to briefly discuss with you uh, the Digital Markets Act. As you know, um, the European Parliament and the Council, uh, they recently, in March, in 2022, have agreed on this new regulation, which will be finally officially approved probably um, in the autumn and will enter into force at the beginning of next year. Um, the DMA aims at safeguarding uh, fair and contestable digital markets. Um, so it does it uh, um, by uh, creating a new set of obligations, which are applicable only to digital gatekeepers, uh, companies that operate in specific core platform services defined by the DMA, and which uh, are considered gatekeeper because they have uh, a certain number of monthly users and they fulfill certain turnover thresholds. So they are big, they control uh, the digital markets. Um, so, in theory, let's say, uh, the DMA and the competition rules apply in parallel because uh, they aim at different uh, objectives, but clearly everybody agreed that there is an overlap with exploitative abuses under Article 102 because, uh, uh, for instance, when we talk about unfair trading practices, clearly Article 102 sanction uh, practices which are against fairness. So also Article 102 uh, clearly might be considered as exploitative abuses, uh, might have a sort of fairness object. Um, and if we look at the obligation included in Article 5 and 6 um, in the DMA, in the final version of the DMA, we see a number of overlaps between uh, the DMA obligations uh, and unfair trading conditions overlap with the recent cases that I had discussed today. For instance, um, Article 5, Paragraph 2 um, force uh, the uh, digital gatekeepers to keep data silos. So the gatekeepers cannot merge together personal data collected from different sources. And this is exactly the type of remedy imposed by the Bundeskartelamt in the Facebook case. Um, similarities are also in Article 6, Paragraph 6, uh, information duty by the digital gatekeepers uh, that operate in the field of digital advertisement, like Google, um, which has to uh, provide information uh, to the publisher and to the advertisers. Again, this type of obligation is very similar, in my view, to the commitments uh, recently uh, agreed by the Autorité de la Concurrence and Google in the Google News case. Um, so uh, we have uh, a sort of open question, and I would like to conclude my presentation with this open question. Um, the question is, to what extent the DMA obligation will prevent 
new antitrust investigation concerning unfair trading conditions imposed by dominant digital platforms. Um, in the past, there have been cases where um, regulation has been reactive uh, to certain type of abuses. So uh, we had in the past, for instance, in the electricity sector, several um, investigation by competition authority sanctioning as excessive pricing cases of withdrawal of capacity at big times. And few years later, um, the, the EU institutions have adopted the remit um, regulation, which has improved, let's say, the market environment. And therefore, these type of cases have not been investigated anymore by the competition authority. So we will see what the DMA will bring to uh, the competition investigations in Europe. So I stop here. I'm afraid I have probably went uh, beyond uh, my my time, Pablo. Uh, no, no, no. Do you have any questions about uh, the presentation? That, that, that was perfect. Thank you very much, Marco. And uh, so as before going to a couple of other questions I have, um, and you, you mentioned the last question was actually if the DMA will uh, prevent any new investigations on digital platforms. Uh, you mentioned the reactive regulation on Remit. Uh, I would also refer that I think you also referred to the case of MasterCard uh, and the regulation uh, as a consequence of that case. Uh, do you think that, and actually, if I'm not wrong, correct me, uh, on the interchange fees uh, after the MasterCard uh, case and the reactive regulation, there have been no cases on that on that ground. So, do you think? we might follow a similar path on the DMA. And related with that, before you answer, related with that question, uh, and you mentioned this uh, circumvention of the law uh, in the cases of uh, the Autorité with the Google case, uh, circumventing in a certain way the copyrights uh, directive and also uh, the GDPR being circumvented by, as this Bundeskantelam, uh, mentioned in the Facebook case. Do you think we will see more of more on that uh, on the digital area or in general uh, on abuse, uh, exploitative abuses cases? Yeah, it's a very good question, Pablo. Um, I don't have a crystal ball, so I cannot <laughs> really uh, tell you what will happen in the future. Um, my expectation is that um, we might have, uh, since in any case, uh, markets quickly develop so uh, the digital gatekeepers uh, will uh, uh, i would say uh, be happy i would say to comply with the dma obligation and they will develop let's say new practices um which might be considered uh, uh, abuses and exploitative uh, so my expectation is that we might have in the future other investigation concerning unfair trading practices but not in uh, uh let's say uh the couple of obligation mm. uh concerning exploitative abuses especially unfair trading practices that we have in the dma in in article 506 so um i don't know for instance uh, the data silos obligation in article 5 is very clear mm. um so i don't expect that we will have uh, um, this type of remedies imposed by competition authorities in the future, like the Bundesrepublik did in Facebook. On the other hand, there are a lot of investigation 
uh, ongoing. Cases like Facebook are still pending. We still don't have uh, a final uh, court ruling on the case. So all the pending investigation, I think uh, they will be concluded with a decision by a competition authority independently by um, the DMA and how it's enforced. And also, it will also uh, depend a lot by how the Commission will frame the DMA obligation. Um, and certainly, this will be quite challenging for, uh, for the Commission. Uh, and it will take uh, quite some time for the Commission to enforce this regulation properly. Thank you. Uh, I mean, as you also mentioned in your paper, um, this sort of revival of uh, exploitative abuses uh, has, in a certain way, taken place only in very specific markets. Uh, we have also very special characteristics. Let's say, for example, I mean, high and stable entry barriers, uh, um, a lack of innovation incentives, and also a lack of regulation or sector regulation. Uh, with the DMA, going back again to the DMA, do you think, I mean, we will have or you will have in Europe, and, and when I say we, I imagine that something similar might happen also in Latin America, maybe with Brazil taking the lead on that regard. Um, we would have some sort of uh, sector regulation. Uh, we will also have these sort of entry barriers, but I mean, what about um, innovation incentives? Do you think that, that might have a result on a lack of incentives or will reduce those incentives? Uh, I know you don't have the crystal ball, but I mean, uh, what, what do you think on will be the impact of a DMA in Europe with this uh, innovation incentives, if, I, if, if there's any? Yeah, I mean, this is the critical uh, criticism of those who are against the, the DMA. They, uh, there are a lot of authors and scholars who argue the, the gatekeepers are actually the most uh, innovative firms in the markets and they mm. both, uh, uh, offer so many new services uh, to consumers, mostly, let's say, for free. Uh, uh, so why we should sanction them? Uh, the approach following the, the DMA is um, that we can have innovation if we have market contestability. So, if we have new entrants in the market, let's say, um, then uh, uh, these new entrants might have uh, a new idea, new business model, new type of services, which simply at the moment cannot reach final consumers because of uh, uh, the economies of scale and the network effects that I discussed in my presentation. So to some extent, the attempt of the DMA is uh, to limit, uh, let's say, the market power of the digital gatekeepers to make a bit of space for new entities which might be uh, more innovative. Again, these are uh, speculations. Let's say you can see uh, the glass half full and half empty, and uh, you mm. can have different views uh, about innovation, whether monopoly generates innovation or competition generates innovation. We will have to see in the coming years uh, um, if indeed we will have new entrants in digital markets because of the DMA. It's still unclear. Sure, sure. Uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, interesting developments to, to come. Taking you to a more sort of global uh, area or worldwide, let's say, after the, or if we are after this COVID or 
the pandemic uh, and this uh, new situation in which we see a lot of high inflation rates in lots of countries, something that we in Latin America and specifically in Argentina, where I'm talking from, uh, we do have a lot of experience on that. Um, we've seen during the, the outbreak of COVID, uh, for example, hand, hand sanitizers and those types of products that high skyrocketed in price and uh, we've seen a lot of cases that maybe didn't finish in fines or specific issues on excessive pricing for example but i mean if we compare for example the development of uh, abuses on exploitative abuses uh in the us uh after trinco we had actually no cases on this in this area in the us we've seen as we've seen in your presentation uh, some sort of revival, a very specific revival in Europe. Uh, and in during the pandemic, uh, the, 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 the worst part of it, 2020, uh, and what we've seen in, in many countries in Latin America, for example, on high inflation rates, do you think there, there will be any, any change, for example, in the US in the approach they have or any review of new theories or uh, we've seen a lot of new theories going on and a lot of discussions right now in the U.S., uh, both in the Congress and also in the authority. But I mean, this new uh, era of inflation rates, do you think it might have an impact on competition policy uh, without entering into the discussion of micro, macro economic? But I mean, uh, that I think there are, there are different uh, areas. But I mean, do you think there will be uh, uh, a change of approach? Yeah, I mean, I fully understand your uh, your point. Uh, in Europe, there have been a lot of uh, investigations started in uh, mm. spring 2020 about uh, no. excessive pricing of uh, face mask protection and uh, other uh, uh, medical devices. Uh, and now, recently, there have been also some attempts to investigate excessive pricing by gas stations and so on uh, in Germany. But to my knowledge, no one of these cases has ended up in any decision. Hmm. Um, so I, I personally, I'm against the idea that you can use competition policy for uh, uh, macro objectives, let's say, uh, hmm. like anti-inflation. You can use hmm. uh, regulation for that. You don't need the competition policy which targets sanction specific uh, market conduct by individual firms or group of firms. Um, so personally, I, I don't think, uh, uh, let's say, competition policy, neither in Europe nor in the United States nor in other parts of the world, will really be used to tackle inflation, let's say. If that was the case, uh, this would be a radical change, too radical change of what are the objectives of competition policy. This is my personal view. Great, great. Well, Marco, I think we are reaching the end of our, our conversation. Thank you very much for, again, accepting the invitation and for being so generous to express your ideas on the recent work. Uh, I hope we have you again soon at the IDC. Uh, Thanks a lot, Pablo. Take care. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye, -bye. Bye.